Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwine Municipals. Joining me today is our deputy editor, Seth Brumby. Usually there's a few more people joining us, or at least a couple more. But today, Seth, I guess it's just you and I. Everybody seems to have abandoned us. Well, I think, um, yes, they're on vacation, but one of them is also fleeing a hurricane right now down in Florida, uh, which seems to be a big topic of conversation over the past couple of weeks. Um, I mean, imagine that you go on vacation. I'm sure this happens to a lot of people. And then a natural disaster strikes. So uh, we, we wish all of our colleagues in the path of Irma well. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, natural disasters going around. Um, you have wildfires in, on the West Coast. You have the largest earthquake in the last hundred years in Mexico that just happened, and Hurricane Irma that's still causing damage uh, going through the Caribbean. You have Hurricane Jose right behind that that could cause some significant damage as well. And then on the eastern coast of Mexico, you have Hurricane Katia. So... There is a lot going on on the front of uh, natural disasters. I think you forgot Harvey there, too. I, did you forget Harvey also? Harvey was there. Well, Harvey's already passed, but yes, you're right. I mean, at least in the last week, you can certainly include that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of hurricanes. I can't seem to remember this many at one time. Uh, you know, doesn't, I know this gets into a real touchy issue with climate change and people that believe it and people that don't believe it. I think it's just more that <laughs> this is a lot to deal with all at once. So, and clearly something is going on because uh, this is unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but these will all be things that we track. But specifically, I wanted to just uh, offer a couple of comments on Hurricane Irma in terms of uh, the impact on Puerto Rico. Uh, as many of you, if not all of you know that are listeners, we have a reporter down in Puerto Rico, Severa Negras Prisioni. Um, she's fine. She's healthy. Uh, only has limited electricity, but otherwise her spirits are good. Uh, we were able to get some reports back from her. And the big issue is going to be how the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority deals with uh, the power outage that exists now. There are about 70% of their clients are without power. Fortunately for them, uh, in terms of their manufacturing and industrial sector, most of those uh, folks have their own emergency water and power, so they're able to persevere. Now, the the other part of that is that they can deal with an outage for a short period of time, but if this extends longer than a week, this could get very problematic. And just in general, you know, they need to have the power running for everybody to be functioning. Uh, so this is probably going to be a very critical week. And then on top of that, you know, we just talked about this, uh, the next hurricane that's following it, and it's in Irma's path, Jose. Don't know yet whether it's going to be uh, hitting Puerto Rico, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, it ended up, that this was just a tropical, more of a tropical storm type damage for Puerto Rico than a full hurricane. So if tropical storm damage caused 70% of PEPA's clients uh, to be without electricity, um, doesn't really seem to bode well to deal with any future issues. And then on top of that, 
over the last five years, they've lost about 5,000 highly skilled technical workers that would be the people now going to fix uh, these electrical issues. So, Yeah, that seems to really be the, the big issue that, that I picked up on at least is um, obviously there's going to be a lot of damage to the grid and to their power lines. And you can put in emergency funding to fix that, but really it's the talent that's not there anymore. They've all retired, and they haven't replaced them. So even if you did get all the funding that you needed to to reconstruct and even improve a lot of the infrastructure on the island, you, you don't have the skill set to do it. And I just wonder if they're going to have to import that skill set uh, from the mainland. We'll see how that unfolds. Right, and we'll probably know within, well, by this time next week when we come on with our Next podcast, we should probably have a better sense of how things are going. And, unfortunately, we'll probably have a better sense of whether or not uh, Hurricane Jose is barreling down the path of the island as well. Why don't we switch gears for a second, Seth, and move over to some issues with various states. Maybe the first we'll tackle is Illinois. Yeah, so Illinois has had a, a decent close to its summer. I, I remember at the start of the summer, we were all looking at junk status for Illinois and the reverberations that would cause in the municipal market. And, you know, at the, at the last hour, they got their act together. I'm not going to say that they're out of the woods yet, but it's certainly better than being downgraded. They're still investment grade, largely because they were able to get a budget together. I believe it was in early July. Um, there were a couple of loose ends, important loose ends, one of which was uh, school funding um, and also paying back their uh, large $14 billion, basically, or their accounts payable. Rahner uh, announced this week that he will agree to issue $6 billion in general obligation bonds to reduce that $14 billion backlog. Uh, they believe they're going to they're target interest of 6.5%, which is a lot, uh, particularly on a, uh, a tax-exempt basis. But that's going back to pay down uh, 12% payables. And um, it's interesting. He, he had a quote. Um, he said, we're choosing to exercise borrowing authority because it's better to have Wall Street carry our debt than Main Street. And uh, I would agree that it's certainly better to extend and pay back your accounts payable, your short-term debt, um, and pay it back using long-term debt. That's, that's obviously just financial basics there. But it, it always amazes me that you know Wall Street has this kind of negative connotation um, with a lot of, particularly in public finance. And the truth is, this is why kind of Wall Street exists, to help you pay down your backlog. And and I'm sure it'll be pretty soon where they're the villains again. But right now, I think they seem to be uh, contributing to Illinois coming out of its cycle of distress. The state has had a knock-on effect. Rather, the state's ability to get its books together has had a knock-on effect, particularly for the Chicago Board of Education and their debt, which has rallied over the past, I would say, month thanks to the budget, but also the agreement between Rahner and the, uh, the state chambers, which basically to allow uh, CBOE to raise some revenue to put into its pension funds, which it really is, is the big problem for CBOE at this point in time. I won't get into too much of the details, but the agreement essentially allows property tax raises uh, to support the teacher pensions. Good news all around for Illinois, certainly better at the end of the summer than it was at the start of the summer. We'll see how the market treats their debt issuance. Six billion is a lot of paper, and six and a half percent is a good yield. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I'm not quite certain on the time frame yet, but we'll be monitoring that, of course. This is all very interesting because I mean, look. First, I totally get the six and a half versus twelve. I mean, 
makes a lot of sense. The part that gives me some pause is that this is long-term debt that they're using to affect this transaction. And this long-term debt is supposed to be used for infrastructure. It's not intended to help pay down operating expenses. But it seems like, you know, at least well, the governor and the legislature seems to be okay with this, but you just wonder whether or not this is going to have other effects uh, that may not be so good once you start to take this approach to try to deal with the backlog. Yeah, I, I would agree that um, you know even getting to this point with a $14 billion backlog is a bad idea. Um, and refinancing it with long-term debt, it's it, the equivalent would be, um, you know, on the corporate side, we, we follow Lending Tree and Lending Club and all of these debt consolidation companies that help consumers out with credit card debt. And yeah, you want to, you know, if you have a credit card that's paying 20%, rather that you're paying 20% on, you know, getting a 10% loan from a lending club to consolidate it sounds like a pretty good idea, but that doesn't exactly help um, your budget of your household because you're still paying really a lot of money to debt that you probably shouldn't have taken out to begin with. So uh, there are equivalents all over the place, and it's kind of funny to look at Illinois as sort of a distressed consumer, but that's kind of where it is right now. Yeah, so um, we'll see how uh, this continues to unfold, but it's just, um, yeah, it's just interesting, though, like, the way the governor and everybody's presenting this as an opportunity, and it's, <laughs> yeah, it's an opportunity to pay down your bills, and that also means the opportunity causes that other infrastructure projects, which is what really needs to get done with these bonds, yeah. are going to have to be sacrificed, and the, this is always interesting because politically, Governor Ron is probably not going to be around when they need that borrowing capacity to do something else that might be important in terms of from an infrastructure improvement uh, point of view. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying that it's just interesting that you're not hearing more about the opportunity cost that's been taken here. And we're given. Uh, you know, certainly the positives on it, but um, well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't want to be, you know, uh, a naysayer today. Uh, we have enough going on uh, yeah. to get people in a down mood. So why don't we move on to Connecticut and Hartford in terms of the bit of news going on there this week. So you have Governor Daniel Malloy, a Democrat, who's not running for re-election this November just put out yesterday, we're taping this on Friday morning, September 8th for everybody, uh, but yesterday, Governor put out a compromise budget proposal for fiscal year 18 that started on July 1st. Uh, so for those of you who are unaware, there are two states in the country that don't have budgets at this point. Wisconsin is one, and Connecticut is the other. Uh, a couple of issues that have been causing a delay with the Connecticut budget or what's going to happen with municipal aid and what's going to happen with municipal contributions or should I say pension contributions by municipalities. So part of the framework that Governor Malloy put out yesterday increased some municipal aid and also decreased uh, the municipal contributions to pensions. So we have that as part of the framework. 
then yesterday as well, Mayor Luke Bronin of the city of Hartford uh, posted a letter. It was kind of interesting how he did this. He posted it on the Twitter, basically the social media, about Hartford's situation and that if they don't get more aid from the state within the next 60 days, and or if a budget isn't put together by the state, that they're going to be filing for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. And Mayor Brunin, he laid out three options when, or in his letter. And those three options were, you know, you can do nothing, and they'll be filing for Chapter 9. You can provide short-term aid, which is another option, but then that really doesn't solve the problem. Then the third option is, to, to take what he calls comprehensive reforms, um, including ways to l- lowering labor costs, including what uh, is probably of most interest to us, uh, seeking some sort of bondholder concessions. Um, so there's a few things going on here in terms of um, you know, what they're looking for. Oh, I should mention one other thing, which is really important with a lot of these capital cities in the Northeast, uh, getting some relief around um, tax-exempt property and trying to get payments in lieu of taxes for that uh, tax-exempt property. Um, so... Yeah, the, the Hartford situation, you know, the, the letter... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that for Hartford to file for Chapter 9, it actually needs authorization from the governor to do so. Correct. And it's kind of, uh, I don't know how you plan on filing for Chapter 9 if the governor doesn't feel like approving it and also doesn't feel like giving you short-term liquidity or funding for your schools or funding for your pensions. It's pretty much in Governor uh, Malloy's hands. My guess is if the governor really didn't want to do anything about it, the city will probably just start defaulting on its debt and within the next 60 days, I believe it has some coupon payments, but importantly, it has some short-term debt about, I think I want to say it's about $20 million, maybe between 20 and $30 million coming due. And if they default on that but can't seek bankruptcy protection, the only thing I can imagine is a creditor sue them for a writ of mandamus, um, which we saw in Harrisburg prior to its ill-fated attempt to file for Chapter 9. But that's the way I see this going. I don't know if a Chapter 9 fine is really imminent unless we hear something from Malloy's office saying that it's okay for them to do so. Maybe this letter was Hartford's way of saying, can we file for bankruptcy without directly asking that? I'm not quite certain. But, again, like, like we'll see how this one unfolds also. Right. And so uh, to the audience, the key here is where's Malloy on this? And that's not quite clear He's talked around it. He's talked about the need for uh, the city to to have a restructuring. Uh, whether or not he supports a Chapter 9 bankruptcy, I guess we will find out within the next 60 days. Yeah, he, he could pull a uh, Governor Padilla on, on creditors, which is when, when Governor Padilla finally decided that he wasn't going to run for re-election in Puerto Rico, he decided to default on all the island's debt. And, you know, maybe Governor Malloy takes the same status. I'm not running for re-election, so let's just, let's just stop paying our creditors and see what happens and have somebody else clean it up. Well, it does free him politically to do whatever he wants to do without having to worry about repercussions, right? So, Correct, yeah. Who 
knows? That is a wild card that we should pay close attention to. But uh, let's move on to other news, Seth, with the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania is an interesting state. It's um, supposedly has a budget, and I say supposedly because it has agreed on how much money it's going to spend, but it has not yet agreed on how much revenue it's going to bring in. Um, there's been a couple of different proposals flying around. Um, House Republicans came out with uh, a, a revenue package, which basically involves tapping various accounts throughout the state that are, I'll just call them dormant for the time being. They're not dormant. They just haven't been drawn on. Um, and they want to tap these 218 accounts to fill the state's uh, $2 billion, $2.2 billion deficit. The lion's share of the money would come from two funds, uh, an infrastructure fund, and also from a fund dedicated to the environment and hazardous cleanup. Uh, you'd also have some money coming from job training and from 9-11 improvements. That's what the House Republicans want to do. It would uh, preserve the state's ability to not raise taxes. The Senate has proposed a tobacco bond of $1.2 billion. Um, what basically that is is a securitization of annual tobacco revenue from the manufacturers of cigarettes pursuant to a master settlement agreement with the Pennsylvania Attorney General in 1998. A lot of states have done these tobacco securitizations, but uh, to, to do a bond for tobacco securitizations to fill a budget hole is really not the best use. It's deficit financing, essentially, and I, I can't imagine that being really a, a great proposal for the state. And the Senate also wants to raise taxes or severance tax on natural gas um, produced within Pennsylvania. Then you have the Auditor General who wants to legalize marijuana and bring in additional 200 to $300 million in tax revenue. You know, apparently marijuana legalization has worked out well for Colorado in terms of its revenue. He cited the success over there and how much money it's brought in for the state. Uh, I haven't really seen any ballot measures or any really big grassroots movements, if you'll pardon the pun, for legalized marijuana in Pennsylvania. But they need to close their their budget deficit, even though they apparently already have a budget. So it's very confusing at this point. Yeah, I just wonder whether, you know, just because it worked in Colorado, I don't know if it works, if the, the cultural dynamic is the same in Pennsylvania for it to work. I mean, I think that'll be interesting because, uh, you know, Colorado had a history of, uh, you know, trying to get... Uh, Libertarians, maybe? I, th I think that might be the word that we're, we're looking for for how they were able to pass marijuana legalization, just the, um, you know, people wanting to be free from any government interference and the choices that they make. I haven't quite seen that movement in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so, but obviously they have a revenue need, and, mm. you know, this probably would have been laughed at a few years ago, um, but I don't <laughs> think people are laughing now because... Uh, you got to make up that revenue somehow. Yeah. You got to make up the revenue, or you got to cut services. Yeah. It's a pretty simple equation. You can't be doing soda taxes everywhere. Uh, you know, in Philadelphia, they did a soda tax, and it hasn't gone as well. Uh, the controller actually came out this week and wants to study the soda tax impact, and it, there seem to be two reasons. One is there's there's lots of media reports about how this is affecting particularly small businesses. Um, you know, family pizzerias that have been around for a generation or two. You know, uh, it, it's just too expensive for them, um, so they're closing their doors. And it's also the revenue is below projection, so has it really helped the city at all? 
And, you know, there's, and, and in other areas, too, the soda tax has been subject to some lawsuits. So, you know, people do have to get creative in how they're going to raise revenue, um, i.e. create taxes or cut services. And nobody's quite figured out the right formula yet. Yeah, soda tax is always, I always have conflicted feelings about that because uh, I can't think of a good reason to drink soda. Right? <laughs> I can't think of any health benefits other than the fact if you want to burp, I guess, you need soda. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you get some club soda if you need to do that. Right, but other than that, I can't think of any kind of benefit. But at the same time, you know, do you want the government coming in and pretty much, I mean, it's either something whether it's, it should be legal or illegal, but to kind of force people or to make it punitive, oh, that's, a, that's a tough one. But, uh, yeah, but I guess, you know, we have, you know, that's what sin taxes all right, so, uh, yeah, this is going to, because remember, this played out in New York, right? Uh, when Mayor Bloomberg tried to get a soda tax, and that... Yeah, and, and New York City got the uh, the nickname of the nanny state, because there are a bunch of other things that Bloomberg was trying to do at the same time, regulating salt on tables and restaurants. You know, we managed to ban trans fat, which was probably a good idea, uh, but throwing up, the, you know, the calories per meal on any franchise restaurants... Um, you know, those are all done under Bloomberg. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that, well, that debate's going to go on for a while. But, uh, all right, let's switch gears again. And uh, you had mentioned, Seth, Hurricane Harvey before. And I know internally we're looking at a particular sector where we think that the effect could be substantial. And that's with the Texas municipal utility districts, uh, a.k.a. MUDs. Uh, if you're familiar with the market, you're probably familiar with Texas MUDs. If you're not familiar with the market, this probably sounds like I'm talking a foreign language. But basically, in Texas, uh, they have these MUDs that are basically put up to provide utility infrastructure for new developments and new housing developments. And they collect property taxes from those houses that pay off bonds that have been issued. So let's say you want to start a new housing development somewhere outside of Houston. Uh, you go, you start a MUD, uh, you issue bonds, and to the extent that you have development, those property taxes coming from the assessed value uh, that's calculated every year, those are providing property tax revenues that pay off the bonds. Typically, a lot of these districts, Seth, are very small. They could be $5 million, $10 million. We've seen some estimates that are about, there are about, just so you have a context, 500 MUDs around the five-county area surrounding Houston. So <laughs> once you understand that, and once you start to think about some of these areas within Houston and within those counties surrounding Houston that were in the disaster area, it does bring into question how are these months going to manage to, how are they going to perform going forward? Now, the good news is that there's probably little to no near-term impact. And, for example, a lot of these months have debt service payment dates on September 1st, 
those payments were already taken care of, that money was already set aside, so that's not the problem. Here's where the problem could potentially could potentially be an issue for these MUDs. To the extent that uh, a MUD is in a disaster area, the current dis- disaster area, that particular MUD can ask for a reappraisal, right? And that reappraisal uh, would obviously lead to a so- lower assessed valuations. Lower assessed valuations means lower property tax revenue received. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the mechanics of it, but typically the assessed values are as of January 1st. So if a MUD wanted to do a reappraisal, and let's say they wanted to do a reappraisal now based on damage from Hurricane Harvey, then the assessed value would change as of whatever date of the disaster. So let's say um, it was declared on September 5th. From September 5th through the rest of the calendar year, the assessed valuation would be lowered, and then you would kind of combine that uh, to figure out what the new assessed valuation would be and, in turn, how that would impact property tax revenues. So to the extent that these MUDs are still there, there won't be an issue. But to the extent that these MUDs go away or people decide not to come back, you're definitely looking at an assessed valuation hit. Um, but uh, we probably won't have a good sense of that until probably this time next year when all the emotion and everything else is gone from the situation and you can figure out, well, who's actually staying, what's actually happened to the assessed valuation. Um, and the other component to this is what were the tax rates because you can only tax up to a certain amount in a mud. So to the extent that a mud had a higher tax rate, they don't really have much room move to maneuver up. So there are a couple of variables in play, but the big picture thing for people to take away from this is that there could be an issue as we go out 6 to 12 months with uh, Texas MUDs. Um, so. From a credit perspective, it's an interesting situation, and it, and it calls to mind uh, the Florida CDD. Um, Florida CDDs are very similar, Paul. They're, they're you know, you... You have a plot of raw land, and you want to mow down the trees and, and put some roads and pipes out there. You issue CDD bonds to do it. And those went through a restructuring phase, I would say, about five to seven years ago after the uh, the housing crisis in Florida. And you know the way that I had looked at that and the way that we found distress in the CDD bond issuance was to take a look at the vintage and what years the bonds were issued. And the ones, as you get closer and closer and closer to kind of the housing fallout, those were the bonds that were most likely default, not only because the underwriting might have been worse, um, and that was the source of distress in Florida, not Texas, but because there was less development there and less people in those developments, um, it was much harder for those CDDs to recover. And if we look at Texas, Texas, the underwriting might have been better, but if I, if I take a look at the more recent vintages and recognize the fact that that might have less development than some of the older vintages where there's deeper roots with those communities, um, I think from a credit perspective, at least from my own standpoint, I'll be taking a look at the most vintage MUDs to see how those perform over the next one to two years. And, uh, right, you know, and then there's the other issue of, well, there's been discussion of maybe uh, that 
Houston and the suburbs around it overbuilt. And to the extent that these muds are in areas that are deemed not worth rebuilding, then that brings out another question of, well, what do you do with the bonds if you're not going to rebuild in that area? Because obviously that's going to mean that the assessed valuation is, is, is not going to be as high. So I just think it, it just raises a lot of questions. It doesn't mean that it can't all work out. And everybody, uh, we're not trying to say that everybody won't be made whole, um, but there are a lot of small muds, and it's it's not incon- inconceivable that you had a mud that just got overrun with water, and they're not going to build back there. We're not, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to sensationalize this by just bringing that up as a possibility and, and something to look at. Um, but, Seth, maybe we want to close it out with uh, some of our recent work that we've done in regards to Hurricane Harvey, Harvey and trying to figure out, uh, you know, different borrowers that could be affected? Sure. So over, over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've had our research team with Greg and uh, Jaloon and Yaki taking a look at a, a couple of things. One is just trading in general um, for bonds issued out of Houston, both with uh, general obligation, various enterprises, and then also airports as well. We'll probably expand that in the near future to take a look at hospitals. I, we did notice in some of our secondary market reports that look broadly at the market that there was some hospital variable rate debt issued out of um, the Houston area that was trading a lot over the past week or so. And it, it was a bond that we don't typically see trading. Um, but uh, this week we actually updated our first report on Harvey, which took a look at independent school district debt um, in the four counties uh, surrounding the Houston area. Um, this week we updated that. Um, for listeners who aren't too familiar with independent school district in Houston, a lot of them are backed by the Texas Permanent School Fund, otherwise known as PSF. Um, the PSF, however, doesn't guarantee and doesn't backstop every single bond issued out of independent school districts in Texas. And so what we did is we took a look at the enhancements for those uh, school districts um, and which bonds lack that. And we put that out that report out this week, and we'll gradually be chipping away at the research to get something probably more comprehensive as we go through the fall. Yeah, well, Seth, it looks like we ran a little – we had less people, but we ran a little longer today. Yeah, I know. I don't know how that works. Um, we'll be back <laughs> next week with maybe some more brevity. Sorry about that. No, no, there was a lot to cover this week. Uh, but want to thank everybody to listening to this edition of the Muni Lowdown. Hopefully you'll be able to join us next week. Take care.